This is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, a show that tries to be an incubator of great ideas and a place to challenge popular wisdom. Today, we're replaying chapters 1 through 6 on education. Hopefully you'll give it a listen or re-listen, and you'll get all this from a guy in the street perspective. And if you have any ideas you'd like to add to these chapters, you can reach me at nick at solvingproblemsandstartingnewones.com or find us on Facebook slash Problem Show. This education series I put together is part of a thought process of five broken pillars that are ruining our society. Education, healthcare, family and community, border security, and of course, government. Now, even though the education series is done, that doesn't mean there isn't plenty more to say. We'll definitely be covering history like we did in episode six with Vietnam. A way to look at why education is a major pillar in our society is to look at what it's attached to. You can't talk about basic economics without education. You can't talk about financial freedom without learning basic economics. You can't talk about saving and retirement until you know how to achieve financial freedom. And any knowledge you accumulate falls in the shitter if you don't take care of your health, which leads us to another broken pillar. As the show continues, you're going to realize how every episode is somehow connected. Except when I talk about X-Men and Superman. That's for me. Enjoy the rest of the show. Okay, let's start out with something we'll be focusing on a lot this season and talk about our education system. This is Chapter 1, Drugging the Children. Over the last two decades or so, you've heard the terms Attention Deficit Disorder, or ADD, or ADHD. You hear it pop up when it comes to school kids. To lessen the problems, kids are prescribed Ritalin, Adderall, you know, drugs. To kids. The types of drugs that are known to destroy the motivational center of the brain. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some kids who need help. About 30 years ago, prescribed medication for kids was in the thousands. Now, it's in the millions. Now, is this a bad thing? If kids are able to concentrate more and they're not disrupting the class, is that a good thing? Or are we missing a deeper issue? It wasn't always like this. So what changed? Is it the curriculum? Kindergarten to me was more about finger painting, learning about the holidays, and listening to stories. Now that's changed. In most American schools, the expectation is for five-year-olds to sit still, read, and write. Something most five-year-olds have a tough time doing, particularly boys who are prescribed the most drugs. And it seems like such a small change, normally reading and writing is taught in first grade. And for some kids, that's okay, but apparently for millions of others, not so much. If you think about it for more than a second, you can easily understand how tough it is to have 20 kids sitting still, staring at a book, and being quiet. There are full-grown adults that never shut up. So should we expect more from a five-year-old? Is it appropriate? Is it okay that an overworked teacher will suggest to a parent to have their kids evaluated because they don't have the time to spend with a child who may learn a little differently? Or maybe the curriculum may be a little too advanced for them. So a child psychologist would know all this, but why are they the ones prescribing the drugs? And I have led workshops for the child psychiatrists. And they have said, look, if this kid comes in and I give him the medication, everybody's happy. He, He sits still, teacher's happy, parent's happy, everybody's happy. If I say, look, the problem here is not so much with the child, but with the school. The school is doing it wrong. They shouldn't expect five-year-old boys to sit still and be quiet for an hour at a time. 
I'm going to get in trouble. The principal is going to contact uh, our medical director and say that I'm bad-mouthing the school. I'm going to get bad comments. The parents were coming in expecting a medication, and I didn't give them one. I'm going to get bad reviews on Yelp and on Google. You know what? I'll write the prescription. Everybody's happy. If I don't write the prescription, everybody gets in trouble. And this leads to another finding that points out that there are more kids diagnosed with attention deficit disorder in this country than any other country. This is the only country in the world that prescribes drugs to children as freely as we do. Any other country would treat medication as a last resort. But here, it's a first resort. We've gone from 1% of the high school kids diagnosed with attention deficit disorder in the 70s to 20% of high school kids today. Do you think giving amphetamines to a child that doesn't need it isn't going to have a negative effect? It's going to numb them. It's going to kill their motivation. We are allowing a generation of kids to fail. Where is the government approved researchers to look into this? I said, if there was any truth to what I'm saying, you'd have heard this before from a more authoritative source than Leonard Sachs, a family doctor. You'd have heard this from someone like Dr. Joseph Biederman, a chief of research in pediatric psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And of course, Dad didn't know where I was going with this. And I said, you know, the same thought occurred to Senator Charles Grassley, United States Senate Judiciary Committee, who summoned Dr. Biederman to the United States Senate and said, Dr. Biederman, you've really been pushing Adderall hard. You have said that if a parent, uh, if a doctor prescribes Adderall for a child and the parent does not promptly fill and administer that medication, Dr. Biederman, you've said that parent should be considered for charges of criminal child neglect. Uh, Dr. Biederman, are you by any chance taking money from the drug companies that you've never publicly disclosed? But it turns out he was, uh, more than $1.6 million, according to his count. That count was never independently verified, um, which is fine. He didn't break any law. Uh, a doctor can accept as much money as he wants to from the drug companies, and he's not breaking any law in the United States. But his action was unethical. He should have told us. And according to the New York Times, this doctor and researcher, Dr. Peterman, and many others like him, take money from the pharmaceutical companies, effectively turning them into paid sponsors. And for the record, he still has his job, and when questioned on why he didn't mention to anyone that he was taking money from the pharmaceutical companies, he said, why would I? It's standard practice. So how do we fix all this? Stop giving drugs to kids. All we're doing is setting up a life of dependency for these kids. And maybe parents need to cut out the soda and the candy and the sugar shit from the kids' lives. Maybe stop jamming an iPhone screen directly in front of their face. Maybe they'll be able to concentrate more. Maybe they won't be a fat, drug-addicted pig. Pretend for a moment you were the principal of a school. Imagine there was a student in your school that came from a middle school where he needed adult supervision at all times. What if he carved a SWAT sticker in his desk? What if he caused over $1,000 of damage in a bathroom? What if he racially abused black kids and got into fistfights with them? What if he was known for throwing desks across the room? What if he would throw hard objects at other students with the intention of injuring them? What if he brought dead animals to school? What if he punched his mother in the teeth and punched her mother's teeth out? What if he brought knives and a backpack full of bullets to school? What if he wrote kill over and over in his notebook? 
What if he threatened to rape the female students? What if he threatened to shoot the teachers and the students? What if the student did all these things? As a principal, would you allow this student in your school? For the safety of other students, would you have him move to another school to get the help he desperately needs? I would like to think the answer is pretty obvious. So why was the Parkland shooter who did all these things I just mentioned allowed in that school? Why was every instance reported to the school administrators and not to the police? This is Education Chapter 2, Kindness for the Cruel. So how did this happen? Like a lot of things with the best of intentions. About 40 years ago, before the violence in schools swelled, there was a law that made sure a child with disabilities received the same education as their peers. This law was aimed at children with Down syndrome. In 2011-2012 period, a step forward was taken in Florida. Broward County, where the school shooting took place, had the highest number of student arrests in Florida. Robert Runcie, the superintendent, stated that this was because of institutional racism. So he started a program called Promise. The program required agreement from the parents or a judge before the school would be allowed to transfer a child with disabilities to a more therapeutic school. But the word disabled took on a more broader definition, not just geared towards harmless children with Down syndrome, but also kids with violent behavioral issues. The kids are allowed to be educated with their peers until it proves impossible. One example was a teacher had to take out a restraining order against a student, a violent student, before they could be removed from that school. And this was done, and the whole program was done to break the pipeline from school to prison. And as a consequence, the police are prevented from getting involved in incidents they would previously would have handled. Soon after the Promise program began, the Obama administration got involved. And the reason was they saw the results after one year a 70% decrease in crime and arrest among young kids, and a 70% decrease in school suspensions. After that, a letter was sent out by his administration advising school superintendents nationwide that racial disparities in suspension rates would be grounds for finding the school in violation of federal anti-discrimination laws and therefore at risk of losing federal funding. The problem is these numbers aren't real. Discipline was restricted. In order to discipline a student, tons of documentation were required. Plus, teachers were told directly to avoid sending students for punishment so that the school's image would not be tarnished. And now, teachers, getting, teachers are getting physically and verbally abused. All these things have skyrocketed because there's a lack of discipline, a lack of repercussions. This is not their job to take abuse. They are not paid enough to take this shit. And they can't do anything. From what teachers have told me recently, all they can do is make sure there's documentation of any incidents. And it typically goes nowhere. Right now, all the lawmakers really care about is the, the arrests have plummeted, but they don't care about that, the fact that the behavior hasn't changed at all. Instead, a culture of leniency is taking place where these kids are not held accountable until they graduate high school. And surprise, surprise, crime and arrests have gone up for people 18 to 25 in Boward County and among other counties. Had they been disciplined at an early age, they would have had a chance of avoiding going down a wrong path. What we have instead is a school, instead of a school to prison pipeline, we have an after school to prison pipeline. And a quick side note, what does the genius state of California do after knowing all this? You'd think they would learn something, you know, from Florida. 
In July of 2020, it will be illegal to suspend disruptive students. Brilliant. And all across the country, it's becoming more and more difficult to punish bad behavior. And what does that do? Disruptive kids don't learn anything. The students they disrupt don't learn anything. And at its most extreme, some asshole steps out of an Uber, Uber with a rifle bag and walks directly into a school and shoots 17 people. The schools are labeling kids with bad behaviors the same way they would label someone who's dyslexic. Then they are given special treatment. One child in Palm Beach County, who is labeled as having poor anger control, was recommended to be transferred to a therapeutic behavioral school. His parents said no. It wasn't until he flipped over a table with an attached chair, breaking a student's leg, that he was finally removed, but only for 45 days under federal law. Students with violent tendencies are given more rights than the students they endanger. By all accounts that I've read, the Parkland shooter was actually thriving in Cross Creek School, which is a school for kids with severe emotional disorders. They, they had smaller class sizes, uh, nurses were there to make sure the students were taking their medication, and counselors who know how to handle emotional students. But the Parkland shooter didn't want to be in a special education school. He wanted to go to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and his mother supported the move. And because of the laws that were in place, the district allowed it. In the following year, he would fall apart, attempting suicide, starting fights, and all the things I mentioned in the beginning of the segment. And the school would continue to give him special treatment. For example, when he threw a tantrum in class, the teacher would tell the students to leave the classroom, and the teachers and students would wait in the hallway until he was done breaking whatever he could in the classroom. He clearly did not belong there. He clearly needed help. He clearly needed to be removed, but he didn't, and a year later, he would return with an AR-15. So who do you blame? School administrators for not reporting dangerous situations to the police, which allowed the shooter to have a clean record? The mom for her willingness to put the students in danger? The Obama administration for advocating and spreading these laws that simply do not work? The shooter, how much blame do you really put on him? Or do we just forget all this and focus on the AR-15? So, how do you solve this? Well, in Florida, parents are definitely doing what they can because they know the kings and queens on top aren't going to do shit for them. Over half the state's students go to a charter school or a private school, and the public schools currently have the lowest enrollment numbers in the last 18 years, and the trend is growing. But here's another thing to focus on. Do we continue this culture of kindness for the cruel? so they can be cruel to the kind? Or should we get in our heads that discipline is not abuse? Discipline is in between compassion and punishment. To parents, teachers, and the community at large, there needs to be some rationale that you are the first to discipline. You are the first authority for young kids. And the second authority is the police, then the judge, then the warden. Have you ever had a bad teacher? Have you ever wondered why bad teachers don't get fired? What institution has the most influence and spending power over politicians? To answer those questions, we're going to learn about the teachers' unions. This is Chapter 3, Fire the Teachers. So, what we're going to do is go over the history of the teachers' union, talk about what the problems are, and try to find solutions. The first teachers' unions were the National Education Association in 1857, and the more well-known American Federation of Teachers in 1916, the ATF. The ATF would see their numbers grow during the Depression era due to their stance on better teachers' pay. 
Also, the Communist Party became a big influence at the time. So you can see they started off on the right foot. The main purpose of the union is to give power to the teachers by advocating for better wages, better benefits, and job security. Now let's talk about the teachers' unions through the 1930s to the 1970s. And that brings us to the 1980s. Trust me, you didn't want me going over all that. So from the 1980s to today, the AFT and the NEA have contributed about 30% more to federal political campaigns than any other corporation, than any other union, making them the most influential lobbying group in America today. So what's the problem? Well, let's start by answering the most important question. Are teacher unions good for students? Right now, the U.S. ranks 27th in the world. So, like I always do, I ask the question, was it always like this? It was not. In the 1970s, the U.S. was ranked number one. In the 1990s, the U.S. was still in the top 10. So what happened? Some of it can be blamed on the lowering of disciplinary measures as covered in Chapter 2. Some of it can be blamed on complacency. When you're number one and you slip to number two or even number 10, it doesn't really pop up on anyone's radar with any sense of urgency. It isn't until the manufacturing and factory jobs start to disappear, then you realize your child isn't educated or qualified enough to get the engineering job that's available. Then you start to care. When the unions are asked about the U.S. rankings in the world, their response is that they are underfunded. Now, if the schools are underfunded, what you'd want to do is compare it to something. I choose the number one education system in the world, which is, at the moment, Finland. How much does Finland spend per student? Around $11,000. But the U.S. spends $16,000 per student. So I don't believe we are underfunded. I don't think that's the problem. And just to be clear, this whole thing I'm doing isn't about being number one in the world. It's about making sure students, young kids, have the education that will prepare them for the economy that they are entering. Right now, it is not. You also have to understand that a place like Finland has a population of a little, little over 5 million people compared to the 330 million in the U.S. One of those countries is going to have an easier time to make sure no child is left behind. But with the amount that's spent, we should at least shoot for the top 10 again. Another thing I hear is teachers don't get paid as much as teachers in other countries, which is true. And you can imagine a lack of pay and overwhelming students may actually burn a teacher out. I can understand that, but there is a severe fact that teachers' advocates leave out when comparing their salaries to others. As a teacher in Finland, you do almost earn as much as a doctor or a lawyer. You are respected. You also need a master's degree to teach there, which everyone seems to leave out. You earn your right to teach. It is actually easier to become a doctor or a lawyer in Finland than it is to become a teacher. They also spend two hours a week on teacher development, which has yielded great results. Do we make it too easy in this country for a teacher to get a job? Continuing the comparisons to other countries, yes. Well, if it's relatively easy to teach, then there should be a fast and easy way to filter out good teachers from bad teachers, right? Nope. The teachers' unions fight tooth and nail against teacher evaluations any chance they get, which, in their defense, is their job to make sure teachers have job security. And they are doing a great job. One in 57 doctors will lose their medical license every year. One in 97 lawyers will lose their law license every year. For teachers, one in 2,500 will lose their jobs. The unions stand against teacher evaluations because they believe they are unfair. While my stance is, 
Tell that to every student that gets evaluated every day, every week, every year, for years. Unfair? Too bad. So how, how hard is it to fire bad teachers? Well, first thing you would need to do if you were a school administrator is to make a comprehensive list of incompetent acts the teacher performed, and you would need the teacher to sign that paperwork acknowledging those acts. And if the teacher wanted, they could attach a note explaining their side of the story. This would lead to an unsatisfactory evaluation. From there, you would have to file with the state's education board as they are the only ones with firing power. From there, the teacher would be put in a room like indoor suspension to await a hearing. This may take a year, but don't worry, the teacher will get paid for doing nothing this entire time. Next step, the hearing. The administration and the bad teacher can each have a lawyer. And if the administration wins the case, the teacher will be fired. In the last step, you will then face multiple lawsuits from the teachers' union and their lawyers. That will continue on for years and years, all the while the bad teacher continues to get paid. Average cost to fire a teacher? 200000 taxpayer dollars. In LA, in 2010, the school district spent $3.5 million just trying to fire seven teachers. This is the result of tenure. Teachers receive tenure after an average of two years of work. Before two years, they can be evaluated and removed relatively easy. After that, it becomes easier and less costly to just simply not fire the bad teacher. Well, what does that lead to? Imagine your work, where you work your ass off and do a great job. Meanwhile, the person next to you accomplishes nothing. Imagine if you made the same paycheck as them, no matter how hard you work, because of the rules in the teachers' union. After a while, you may head out for greener pastures. And that's what happens in schools. You have good teachers that care. They leave for better pay and better work culture. Bad teacher comes in and never leaves. And in a very short amount of time, you create an incubator of stupidity. Now, before we get into solving these problems, another point teachers' unions like to make is states with larger members and influence have better outcomes than states that don't. This is true. Massachusetts schools have a tremendous amount of union influence and, are and Massachusetts is recognized as having the best K-12 education. On average, Massachusetts has a 50% proficiency in math and reading. And this is celebrated. 50%? If every state had the same scores in K-12 like Massachusetts, we would move our rankings from 27th in the world to like 26th, and maybe we'd be tied. It's not a win for the unions. So how can we solve this mess? Number one, you would want extended time when tenure goes into effect, maybe five years, or just simply get rid of it altogether. You want better evaluations of teachers just like they evaluate kids. Do you want shitty teachers evaluating your kids? Number three, your school administrators should be in charge of the firing process to make the firing process easier and it would lower taxpayer cost. Lowering the cost of this process could be used to improve teachers' pay. But to get all this, you have to understand the system, and the system is referred to as the blob. I'll break this down as simple as I can. The first part of the system is the teachers. They are paid by the taxpayers, and they pay union dues. Second part, the unions. The government collects union dues from the teachers and delivers it to the unions. Third part is the heads of the unions. Their job depends on increasing the flow of money. More schools, more teachers, more teacher union money, more power for the head of the union. 
The fourth part, influence. The head of the teachers union will use some of that money to create a campaign pushing for better schools and better pay. Part five, the politician. He or she will use the union's campaign as part of their own campaign, with 95% of union money going towards the Democratic side to outspend their opponent. And the last part, the election. If the politician wins, they will get more money to the schools, which some might go to the teachers, and some of the teachers' money goes to the unions. Some of that money goes to the politician for his next election. And he, and she, he or she will advocate for more money for the school, and the cycle continues. And the taxpayer dollars gets used and abused. And that is how you end up with the most expensive school program in the history of the country and in the world. That's how you end up with your money going to the wrong places. And if you were paying attention, there's one thing that isn't part of the system. The students. Why? Because students don't vote. And students don't have money. So why listen to them? So how do you stop this cycle of money? Well, it goes all the way back to episode one of this show. Campaign finance reform, people. Listen to episode one again about the contribution cap. Limit the money in politics. I don't know how a non-voter, an independent, or a Republican voter sits back and allows their taxpayer dollars to go to a system like the teachers' unions and allow their tax dollars to fund a politician they're voting against. If the NRA was taking tax dollars and supporting Republicans, you know full well Democratic voters would have stuffed that shit in a second. Campaign finance reform, folks. And the last movement, how do you make reforms in the teachers' union? How do you take on the most influential group in politics? There's only one group big enough to take on the unions and have more influence, and that is the parents. Parents need to create their own vision or version of a, a union. It would be an unstoppable group with unstoppable influence. And if you want better pay and a better life for the next generation of students, this has to get done. It's the only way to stop the machine. It's the only way to stop the blob. Kids need to be ready for the world that we leave them. Chapter 4, K-8. through this, this should be a short chapter, but it's an important one. My goal is to present an idea, then the argument, and then you just agree with it. What are the problems in kindergarten through 8th grade? What changes should be made? Here's an idea. Get rid of homework. These are kids we're dealing with. They don't want to do that shit. And when they're out of school, no more schoolwork. When you clock out of work, do you bring your work home? No. Mentally, maybe, but you get what I'm saying. Let these drugged-up fat-ass play outside. They shouldn't be stuck in the house. And just so you know, homework was originally invented as punishment in the early 1900s. Seriously, look it up. And I don't see teachers disagreeing with this. Less papers for them to be graded, more free time for them. The only reason any student should do homework is if they're falling behind and need to get their grades up. It also works as an indicator for parents if the kid shows up with homework to do. It lets them know that their kid, you know, might be dumb and needs a little more mom time. That's what you get when you drink wine during childbirth, ladies. So the key takeaway is, let these kids have more time to be kids. Let them fight, let them eat shit that's not food, whatever they're into. Alright, what other changes? Let's, uh, let's try to get a little deeper. Let's talk about morals, decisions, and opportunity. My theory is, if you have good morals, you will make better decisions. If you make better decisions, then you'll have more opportunities. So how do we teach morals to a 5 to 14 year olds? It's actually kind of tricky, but the best way is to ask questions with no wrong answers. I'll give you a shitty example. 
Ask a five-year-old, is punching someone in the face good or bad? I would like to assume the child would answer bad. You'd follow up with, why? You'd probably get an answer like, because it's wrong to hit people. Good answer. So let's say five years goes by and the, the kid's 10 years old. So you ask him, is it good or bad to punch someone in the face if that person is strangling a baby? Well, the child would answer, I, I would think, yes, it's good to punch someone in that scenario. So you'd ask, well, why is it okay now, but not before? Which raises the question, is it okay to do something bad for the right reasons? And you'd probably get a small range of different answers. Again, no wrong answers, but just simply allowing their minds to develop critical thinking skills. So four more years goes by and the, the kid is getting ready for high school. He has one more question. Is it okay to punch someone in the face while they're strangling a baby, but you know full well the baby is going to grow up to be Hitler? What kind of range of answers would you expect to get from that? How many discussions can you have between with those different types of answers? Would you punch the strangler, take the baby, raise it not to be Hitler? Would you let him strangle away? And more importantly, why? Let's put their thinking skills to work. Here's another shitty example you can ask, say, like a 12-year-old. Is slavery good or bad? Bad, right? So what's the opposite of slavery? What is the opposite of bad? Freedom might be the likely answer. So if freedom is good, should you be able to run people over with your car? Should you have the freedom to do so? Now, if you answer no to that, and that type of freedom is wrong, then you need to explain why. Isn't putting restraints on an individual person sound closer to slavery, which we defined as bad? Is extreme freedom and extreme restraints bad? You would have to assume so. We can't look at a good or a good or bad as one line. We have to look at it almost like a circle. Because anything or almost anything in its extreme is bad. It becomes anarchy. It becomes chaos. So what's the opposite of chaos? Order. So in order to have freedom, you must have order. Now this begs the question, who creates the order? You, me, family, community, church, laws? And what if the people in charge of order and freedom, these two good things, isn't really all that good? What if the people in charge lie, cheat, to honestly believe they're honest? Imagine if someone were to burn the American flag, smear crap on the image of the Virgin Mary, or do both to a picture of Martin Luther King. Why are good people more offended by the idea of one of those than the others? Are people mostly concentrated on looking good than honestly being good? That's a lot of questions and no wrong answers. The key is, if you can figure out what good is, then you know what bad is. If you know what right is, you know what wrong is. If you know what chaos is, then you know what order is. And it's more challenging than it seems. Which brings us to decisions and opportunities. All life is, is a series of decisions, a multiplicity of doors. But economics does play a part. If you are a wealthy individual and you make a series of bad decisions, you can typically sometimes come back from that. But if you're poor or somewhere in the middle, a series of bad decisions can leave you out in the sea. If you go 100 miles out to sea, you have to work your way back 100 miles. Some people have to swim back, others take a yacht. Now, some of you are thinking, see, the rich have it so much easier. Who gives a shit? Don't worry about them. Worry about you. Take care of you. Get what you want out of life. There's always going to be wealthy people because no poor person has ever hired a rich person. It's always going to be the other way around. 
So if you have a good moral compass, you will make better decisions, which hopefully will lead you to better opportunities, more opportunities at happiness, more moments of happiness. And hopefully you can string together enough moments of happiness that you can actually look back in life and say, you know what, that was a pretty good ride. Or if nothing else, at least you kept your head above water, which is far more important than money. These are things that need to be added to the structure of early education. Now, for a lot of you, maybe you got kids, niece, nephew, some young mind that looks up to you. Let's face it, maybe it's too late for you. Maybe you screwed up. It happens. So see, here's what you do for the next young generation so they're not morally bankrupt like you. You sit them down, pour yourself a nice glass of tea, and crack open the old Bible, yep, and teach that young mind the greatest piece of literature that's ever been written. Yes, folks, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments. Imagine a world where everyone followed the Ten Commandments. Imagine being able to go anywhere, any time of day, any time of night, without fear of being harmed or killed. Imagine a world where you can leave your windows open, doors unlocked, because there won't be any stealing. Imagine a relationship built completely on trust, with no fear of cheating. Imagine a world where you could Believe everything you read and everything a person says, because there is no lies. Imagine there's no jealousy of others or their possessions. Imagine honoring our moms and dads and those whose shoulders we stand on. Imagine a world where people don't treat any living being as a god. Imagine if everyone strived for good morals. This is Chapter 5, High School. Ah, yes, high school. A simpler time with 9-11 and referring to Christian Indian friends as terrorists. Sorry, Justin. Let's start with some uh, quick ideas that should be added to every high school curriculum. Something that every 18-year-old should be taught right now is, at age 20, if you put $12 away a week, every week, into a Roth IRA, you will, re you will retire a millionaire. There should be at least one year of teaching kids financial education. And I think if you start a class off with $12 a week will make you a millionaire, I think people are going to listen. Or you can wait till you're 40 and it'll run you about $115 a week. Which one do you like? 12 at 20 or 115 at 40? One's more doable than the other and neither is impossible though. Here's another idea I heard. Why can't you earn a two-year degree in high school? A lot of college professors work about five hours a week. A lot of them are paid through tax dollar money. They have the time. What young kids lack today in street smarts, they make up for in book smarts. And the woke religious monsters out there, they want free college. This is as close as you're going to get. And they do have college courses that will help you earn credits. But what I'm promoting is a more streamlined two-year degree so you actually have a skill that you can use right out of high school. Here's another quick idea. What do you do with students with bad grades? You know, Ds and Fs. And I want to clarify something. I have problems with public unions like teacher and police unions. But private unions, they don't really bother me. In fact, I'd say what you'd want to do is have labor unions or labor and skill industries go after kids with poor grades. You know, teach them a skill. Listen, this country needs doctors, and doctors need people who can build hospitals. All oh, because you may not be book smart doesn't mean you don't, have a, you don't have a role to play in society. Which leads us to the key word, direction. Everybody, every parent, wants their young kid to find their own way. Have time to find themselves. Listen, back... 150 years ago, 98% of our economy was farming. My great-grandfather was a farmer. Essentially, everyone was a farmer. The reason summer vacation exists in school wasn't to give people a break. It was given because it was time to harvest the crops. So kids grew up with a, a very narrow direction. If you didn't want to grow up to be a farmer, then your only other options were, you know, maybe banker or a wooden wheel maker. 
And that's it. Just those three jobs and nothing else whatsoever. Anywho, so our schools are still made up of that ideology. Certainly not 100%, but certainly to a degree. And right now, farming is 2% of our economy. So you can imagine how things have changed in you know, a relatively short amount of time. Now today, jobs like farmer, banker, rubber wheel maker, and I assume many more. So I'm here to tell you, finding yourself is not a thing. It's a stupid, hippie logic. Don't find yourself, make yourself. So, how should the youth today do that? Well, you're going to need a pen and paper for this, and I'll do the best I can to explain. And listen, I don't care if you're driving. Get a pen and paper. Put your life in danger for me, okay? If you want to. All right, so my belief is there are 10 different categories of jobs if you really break it down. And a lot of these categories sort of overlap. And the categories are, get your pen ready, white-collar office bullshit, medical and smart sciencey stuff, Community work, communications and sales, you know, people person shit, skill or unskilled labor, aka backbreaking shit, transportation, arts like writing and drawing, entertainment like singing and dancing, sports from coaching to playing, and lastly, the food industry from agriculture to food scientists. That's also an industry that has the highest rates of drug abuse, alcoholism, and suicide. So if you're into any of those, that would be the category that works for you. In total, this comes out to 867 different job titles, which can be shrunk down to 459 different jobs. So 459 is the number you want to work with. Because, for example, an account manager, an account executive, outside sales, inside sales, sales consultant, sales director, sales representative are all derivatives of a salesman. It's all pretty much the same job, just different names. And yes, I counted every single job in America. It took me an entire year just to give you that 15 seconds of information. So just to bask in my own glory, I'm going to read off all 459 jobs so we can teach kids today what jobs are available for them. Here you go. Doctor. Lawyer. Nurse. And prostitute. I know that took a while, but you know me. Anything for you listeners. Back to the 10 categories. Now, when you heard the list, you may, you may have had trouble figuring out where your current job fits in. The reason being, it may be part of multiple categories. Say if you're a professional dog walker, that takes up the labor, salesman, transportation, and maybe community categories. Depending on the job you have in the food industry, it could very well take up all 10 categories. You walk 20 miles a day in the same 20-foot area like an out-of-shaped athlete. Entertain and communicate with stupid customers. Maybe you gotta transport food. Maybe you gotta give some fat ass who's sucking down food like a vacuum the Heimlich maneuver like you're some sort of doctor. And do a bunch of paperwork and payroll crap, and if you can do that all in one day, you can call it an art. Now, what you want to do is rate each category. If you look at the white-collar jobs category... You would want to look at that and ask yourself, am I okay with doing a little paperwork and a little computer work all the way to, am I okay with sitting at a desk for eight hours a day staring at a screen? And if you're the kind of person who can't see themselves in that type of environment, well, that brings the list of jobs from uh, 459 down to about the 320 range. And that's how you want to look at the categories, a range from 1 to 10. And hopefully that will lead people in a direction that they can prosper in. 
It's really about finding the categories that you absolutely hate and do not see yourself doing. Or say you know full well your drug-addicted uh, kindergartner isn't going to be a doctor, so you know to eliminate that from his direction and try and point him in a place where he can be you know, of some use to this planet. And it's also about finding something in the categories that you love to do and also something that you're good at, and hopefully it turns out to be the same job. So with that, I'm going to wrap up this chapter, but it's going to bleed a little bit into the next one. And hopefully I will expand upon this uh, on the YouTube channel down the line because it definitely needs some visual aids. With that being said, what I'm trying to show in this chapter, it isn't what it was 150 years ago. It isn't a choice between Coke and Pepsi. There's 459 options. And making life decisions is tough. You can see why today the most popular answer given when asked, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up is, I don't know. And then it becomes, what do you want to do now that you are grown up? I don't know. So I hope this chapter gives a sense of direction to someone. Because without direction, you become one of these guys playing video games all day just to give yourself a sense of accomplishment. Then before you know it, you're taking Aunt Jemima's face off a bottle of syrup just to give yourself a sense of satisfaction. Happens all the time. Alright, let's move on to our last chapter. This is chapter 6, College. And I covered a lot of ground in episode 6, so with this I'm going to try and look at the cost of college and figure out why it is so high and figure out how we can bring the cost down. And for those of you, like me, that didn't go to college or don't plan to go, maybe you think this chapter won't be interesting. I'd stick around if I were you. Let's challenge some popular wisdom. With a four-year degree, you will earn 39% more than a person with a high school diploma. This is true. But unless you are getting, into getting a law, medical, science, or engineering degree, most other degrees can't compete financially with uh, master electricians, contractors, or owner of, owner of landscaping companies and so forth. That 39% virtually disappears. So if you're going to go to college for the money, then you'd want to stick with science, medical, law, or engineering degrees. But, like I talked about in the last chapter, what if you want to get a community job like a teacher or work in the white-collar world? You're still going to need a degree to unlock that door. But just make sure it's a door you really want to go through, and it's not about the money. I think too many people dismiss college far too easily. Right now, if you want to make a great paycheck, our economy has evolved to a point where you need an IQ of about 100 to be successful. Depending on which study you look at, the average American IQ is around, say, 88 to 98. It's nice to have jobs that have moved past mostly backbreaking labor, but slowly but surely, victory is defeating us. And it's only going to get worse. This is one of the reasons why people feel lost. The problem now becomes a question of direction, which we covered, and cost. So the question is, was college always so expensive? And the answer is no. So that leads me to, when did it go up, and what was the catalyst for the price increase? Well, it's gone up from 1970 to 2020 by 340% when adjusted for inflation. But something caught my eye while looking this up and doing the research, which is college debt has doubled in the last 10 years. So what happened in 2010? And I'm sorry, but I might offend everybody's boyfriend, Broccoli Obama, but in 2010, he signed a new education law, uh, loan law, which eliminated fees for college loans paid to the banks. It was thought to save students money. And according to those right-wing evil conspirators at CNN, Obama's loan policy in the first five years doubled what was expected and has only gone up from there. So here is how the whole system works currently in a nutshell. A student needs a loan to go to college so they get a federal education loan. 
that guaranteed loan money goes to the college. The student never touches that money. And at this point, the student is no longer a student. They are simply collateral. The student cannot file for bankruptcy, no matter what. The college has already gotten paid. The student's job is to pay back that money to the government with interest. That's billions of dollars in interest to these kings and queens. From there, the student loan money goes from the colleges to a few different places. It pays the teachers and professors, but because no one has a problem with taking money from the taxpayer cookie jar, it goes to the ever-increasing non-teaching staff. That includes fundraising staff, athletics, lawyers, admissions, financial aid officers, diversity and inclusion managers, maintenance, security, food workers, and many more. The staff size in almost all colleges have gone up, but the number of students hasn't changed much in the last 10 years. And that's usually where people stop when it comes to the rising cost of college. But on this show, we follow the dollar until we reach the last penny. So where else does your tax dollar go to? And remember, this is your tax dollars until the student pays back the loan. Unless, of course, they end up getting hooked up with a little student loan forgiveness, in which case, you pay. And if you already graduated and paid your own loan, guess what? You're still paying for someone else's. So after paying the teachers and non-teaching staff, your money goes into what's called an endowment, basically a big bucket of money. And that money gets taken care of by the hedge fund managers put there by investors. Now, a lot of you may not know this, but colleges have investors. I looked at, you know, just a random college, UMass Amherst, which is a public college. And I, I wanted to look into what kind of investors they have. And honestly, I was expecting names I'd never heard of, and I thought it was going to take weeks of researching them. But nope, right on their website, what's the first thing I see? Raytheon, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Proc Procter & Gamble, General Electric. These are their investors. So from there, the hedge fund managers or stock managers take that money from the big bucket of money and put it to a friendly place called Wall Street. And that is where your tax dollars end up. We are the only country with this system. And if you think free college tuition is a good idea, just listen, just do us all a favor. Don't vote, and someone will be there shortly to pat you on your head. Okay? So, how do we fix this shit show? Step one, get the government out of the student loan business. They're over $20 trillion in debt, and just, listen, handling money just isn't the thing. Alright? Step two, let the banks be in charge of student loans. And listen, maybe some of you might be against this idea for a couple of reasons. One reason might be because uh, it will be tougher for low-income students to afford to go to school. Good. Maybe companies will stop running ads that say, must-have two-year degree, compensation, $13.50 an hour. When everyone has a college degree, they're going to keep doing that because they can get away with it. If there's less degrees, then maybe they'll focus more on, you know, job training. Another reason you may not like this idea is because you don't trust banks. So I guess instead we'll trust the biggest monopoly in the country, the government. But let me, qualm, uh, let me qualm your fears. The banks want to give loans. The banks do not want you to file for bankruptcy. The bank is not going to give you a, an overpriced loan to become a historian of comic books. The bank is not going to let you take a class where you are not going to learn a skill that will make you money. They want you to make money so you can pay back that loan. Just like the bank wouldn't give you a $20,000 car loan for a car that's only worth 500 bucks. The college needs students. More importantly, they need that student money. The bank is not going to give money for useless classes that teach useless skills. 
So the college would have to cut back on staff that shouldn't have been there in the first place. The college is going to have to cut back on bullshit classes that sound good, but are of no good. Maybe if the colleges believe their school and their classes are worth the price, maybe they should co-sign with the student for the bank loan. And this would make the big bank institutions take on the big college institutions. And the student would be the recipient of more affordable colleges. And with that, this is the end of our series on education. And hopefully you got something from all that. All right, folks, that was the education series, chapters one through six. And I really do hope you got something from all that. This was Solving Problems and Starting New Ones. See you soon.